Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. I'm Dr. Jessica Hooten Wilson. I'm the Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at the University of Dallas. And it was my privilege to get to talk with Zena Hitz, who is a professor at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. She is also the author of Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of the Intellectual Life, which I highly recommend. Uh, Zena is a pleasure to talk to. You will hear the conversation begin somewhat in media rest. Um, which of course is Latin for in the middle of things. And we begin by talking about what is the point of the liberal arts? I tried to ask Zena some tough questions about whether the liberal arts are only elitist. Are they only meant for those who can afford them? Uh, Zena's proposition is that the liberal arts are for everyone and that really we shouldn't miss out on the joy that it is to study the things that make us truly free. Enjoy this conversation between myself and Zena Hitz. If you're open to it, I would love to start just with how you would define the liberal arts, but then let's think about all the people who are going to protest this, who are going to say, I'm working two jobs. What in the world are you talking about? This sounds so elitist. So I define it very broadly. So one of the things I wanted to do was to break out of thinking just about the humanities as something separate. Um, even though I have to focus on the humanities to some extent because that's where my, uh, you know, where my expertise is and, you know, in certain ways where my heart is, but I also, so it's learning for its own sake. And that includes mathematical and scientific thinking for its own sake. So theoretical mathematics, theoretical science. Um, now, uh, and I think that I suspect, even though it's, it's not quite my place, given that I'm not a mathematician or a scientist, I suspect that they are going through something similar, despite all of the attention to STEM and the focus on math and science, that you're diminishing these fields when you treat them as uh, merely instrumental, merely vocational, ways to get like cool toys and cool technology and ways to make money. Um, and the tradition of mathematics and science, which one of my favorite things about my job, if not the most favorite, is that I get to teach all these crazy old scientific and mathematical works. And many of them, obviously there's some selection bias because we're learning for its own sake people, but many of these thinkers are really theoretical thinkers. Isaac Newton is a big picture thinker. He's not trying to, he may also be trying to uh, make great machines, but that's not all he's interested. He's interested in God, the nature of the universe, the nature of materials. He, he has a whole vision of the world. Um, and likewise, someone like Einstein, um, you know, is not, he's not trying to get a technical result. He's not trying to make money. He's just thinking about the way nature works. Uh, so you can make a pragmatic argument, I think very clearly, I think some people have, that 
if you want all the practical benefits of the sciences, um, and for that matter, the humanities, you need to do it for its own sake. But I don't want to fall back on that kind of argument because I, I think that uh, I want to trust that more people than we know and think and more people that even speak have something in themselves that recognizes the value of learning for its own sake. And in a way, um, thinking about the people that disagree in a broad way is difficult because the people who call it elitist are often not uh, really the working people at the, you know, at the bottom of the social barrel who are often very zealous to learn, very interested in reading, full of knowledge about this and that. Um, there's all kinds of depths in uh, other people who we, we think of as being one way or another. Um, and I, I've always suspected this. I've seen it myself in, um, I did a bunch of prison volunteering and, you know, these, these uh, men and women who would not have been judged by society to be, uh, you know, top achievers, extremely intelligent, thoughtful, reflective people who want to understand things. And, uh, and I keep hearing, um, I come from pretty much middle class background myself, but I keep hearing from people uh, who read my book who say, you know, what you're saying reminds me of my dad who worked as a janitor, but had read everything uh, and could talk more intelligently than a lot of the college professors I've met. And so, so I think that we have to be clear about, um, about who, who we're talking about that's objecting. There may be some ordinary working people who object. There may be uh, insecure, successful people who think that other people maybe can't do what they do, or there can be a kind of excessive humility, I think, among academics. It's like, oh, I like to do this, but who really cares about it? You know, there's a kind of classic Thanksgiving dinner experience of an academic, right? You go home and people are like, oh, so what have you been working on? And you say a sentence and they're like, oh, oh, wow, okay, way over my head, you know. Uh, but I, I think that on the one hand, I want to take that seriously as a sign that um, people don't recognize learning for its own sake as something that belongs to them. Uh, and I, I think that if you meet people where they are, individual to individual, you can often find a hook. So how many people, for instance, are really into history? Um, like, you know, I went to Gettysburg um, some years ago, and it's just packed with people. They, they're not college professors. You know, they're, they're ordinary, usually guys, okay? Uh, <laughs> but they are, they want to know everything uh, about this. Well, I think that for me, where I've seen the trend is two different places. One, when I talk to not just academics, but people who are teaching, usually in high schools, who are saying, my kids are working two or three jobs. If they're going to get to go to college, they're going to go to a college to make a better life for themselves. And liberal arts is not going to help them do that. They need to get training, right? That's, the, that's one place I've seen it. The other place has been from more of the college administrative level not really the faculty level. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I think you've covered that base pretty pretty well. The faculty definitely have this intimidation factor where what we're doing is irrelevant to others. Right. But on the administrative side, I've heard, you know, I can't recruit for that. 
parents are bringing their kids here because they want their kids to be able to get a job and make money. If you tell me you're teaching wisdom, how am I supposed to recruit for that? Why do they need to go to you? Wisdom is about experience. Wisdom is, you know, something they'll learn in life. They can read books later. They don't need you. They need to train as a nurse, train as a lawyer, and then they can go read books later. So what do you, what do you say to those two perspectives? See, I, I, I think those are great challenges because um, they, they, they make, it seems to me they push the question backwards to what's going on when people are going to college. You know, what are they going to college for and what kind of worlds are they trying to enter when they go to college? So, and I don't want to, um, I think it would be a huge mistake to disparage a desire to advance yourself in the world. Um, and, you know, there, there's a lot of modes of advancement. There's a lot of needs, uh, places from which one would want to advance. And advancement can be broad. It doesn't have to be narrow. And I think that one of the things I've, uh, one of the, some of the criticisms I've got for my book is, you know, like you're too hard on people who want money and status. And I, um, I think it's probably because um, I'm thinking about it a bit from a more, the middle, a, a bit more of an established middle class perspective where we get kind of hooked on these things. I'm not necessarily thinking about it enough from the perspective of someone who may really need to aspire to something better than what they have. I mean, when I talk to low income families about college and how you do want your kid to advance, I play the use card, like you said. Yes, I believe in the intrinsic value of reading and literature and math and science for their own sake. At the same time, if you really want your child, your student to advance, they're gonna become managers if they learn the liberal arts. Whereas they're gonna be employees that don't have a lot of upward trajectory if they only have training. Right. Won't have these other skills. Right. So I, I think my instinct is that we're in this dilemma where we're advising, we, where we might feel like we're advising parents to act against their own interests or what, because of the kind of extreme condition of our culture. So everyone should be able to both have a rich inner life cultivated by uh, learning for its own sake and to have a route to a livelihood that gives them the respect and helps them live out the kind of life that they want. Um, so everyone needs both of those things. And uh, our institutions, I think, are forcing us into a false choice. And we have to, we have to find a way to reimagine the choice. One way to do that would be um, to uh, think of, to, to really separate, I know this is a bit of a cliche in higher education, but to really separate professional training from liberal arts more clearly. So you're not going to college where you might either train to be a professional or learn liberal arts, but you know, there, there's a part of your life, whether it's college or earlier or through some other informal institutions, cultural institutions, where you're learning liberal arts, where you're learning for its own sake. And then there's some training that you need to get in order to um, work in, in the way that you want to work. So we, we, I th I th so I'm, I'm grappling a bit in the dark because I think um, what's really needed is, is a reimagining of our institutions. And that's not, 
that doesn't come out of a uh, cake mix. I mean, you know, it's it's hard thinking. It's it's thinking that's narrow to specific circumstances. But I think we have to be honest that this is a false choice. Like it's for a human being, it's a false choice. And if our colleges are forcing us into this choice, then something's gone wrong. Your book was fantastic. Uh, the fact that you have to, like you said, that you had to write Lost in Thought because people didn't realize that the intellectual life uh, had pleasure and that, you know, that it was actually a hidden thing. I mean, that's what your subtitle alludes to, that you had to disclose this for people because people couldn't see it. You know, and people are like, wait, you're saying that learning is intrinsically valuable? And do we not, like, is this really a crazy view, you know? You know, and people be like, oh, but you know that really for the people, you've got to say that it makes you money in like, and I'm yeah. like, can't I just tell people honestly how I feel about it? <laughs> like, really, I can't. Mm -hmm. So I'm just so, I've been so happy to find out that like, there's just, yeah. yeah. People like you and Jen and, and other people out there just doing stuff. Yeah, the old ideas aren't completely lost. The, and, and it's funny because people are hearing them as though they're new. Like you just said, can't I just say that learning is intrinsic? <laughs> like, that, like that's such an old idea, but people don't talk like that. Like, no, make sure to mention the practical aspects. Make sure to talk about how useful it is. And, yeah. Well, and it's so, uh, I think it took me a while to realize that the part of why it's so offensive is it's so patronizing. It's like, it's like, you'll never understand really why we do this. So let me talk to you in terms you'll understand. That's uh, a good point. I didn't, I had not, I had not thought about it patronizingly before, but it really, it really is in a large way. Like your paradigm is so small. So I can only enter in and use, it's like using, like, let me use small words. Let me use the little things that you can get. Exactly. That's a good it's point. It's true that that's where people are coming. Like if parents are always do seem to be coming from there, that's true. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's because they their imaginations haven't been sufficiently. Imagination, I love it. <laughs> I'm secretly a literature person. If you haven't been able to figure that out, so uh. I love it. I love it. Well, that's okay. So that's what I'm writing on is how the imagination forms us to be able, right, to build upon these ideas, to be able to practice these ideas. We have to actually have imaginations that have a place for them, right? We we need to know the narrative or else all the ideas have nowhere to hang their coat, kind of, right? I am so, so interested in that. You're like preaching my sermon. Because uh, I've been thinking a lot about aspiration and, um, yeah, and desire and how we need an image to, like, mm -hmm. um, yeah, let's think about what to do. We can't reason our way into big changes. It's just yeah. not how we work. Yeah. Um, and that was why I wrote the book the way I did was right. to, because I, I wanted there to be some images. It's like, yeah. I'm like, people don't need an argument. Like they need some images, you know, they need to be like, to feel like there's something worth living up to. Well, and I loved that. And I mean, you know, even as much as people harp on Plato for constantly being against like the fictions or whatever and down on Homer, but at the same time, like all of Plato is so dramatic and it really relies on images. If somebody asks me to teach, I'm not going to name names, but if somebody asks me to teach a couple of people, I'm like, no, because I can't see what they're talking about. I really can't. Like, I just, I read them and I think, are you, are you living in the same world that I'm living in? I can't see your world at all. Right. Right. I mean, if you, if you imagine yourself as primarily a worker and that college is primarily for 
earning that job and earning that degree and that will help you get the better job, you don't have an imagination for the other parts of your life, which is ironic because when you go to college, people are always selling the cafeteria, the sports teams, the dorms. So they know that the person exists outside of the classroom, that there's more to college than that. And yet they don't train you for cultivating the life after you leave college that's going to be full and rich in addition to your work. When I first started writing about this, I wanted to really distinguish learning for its own sake from work for political ends. But as time has gone on, I've started to see that there is a political dimension to this, not a partisan political dimension, but a dimension of, uh, it's, it's just really what you said about how if they get this training, they'll be employees. And if they get this training, they'll be managers. It's like, are we raising our young people to be our equals, you know, and to be people who are reflecting on the kinds of jobs that they face, that are able to reimagine things one way or another? Are they able to see that things are different? And in a funny way that, um, that, that impulse of administrators to give them lots of toys and, and experiences, it's, it's very infantilizing. It's very counter to thinking of them as being adults who have the freedom to um, make of their college environment what they choose to make of it. I mean, there's, why would you want to encourage a student to not to say found their own theater group or um, start their own set of intramural sports or obviously this would be uh, the activity of a free person, a person who's uh, an equal participant in a community and who makes choices and imagines things. So I, I think that that dimension might be something which does connect better with these skeptical people, because I think most people are, I think have begun to see that our, our, our country is um, much less equal than it used to be in very significant ways. It's not just about money. It's about who's making the decisions, who's doing the imagining, who's deciding what counts as a job and what doesn't, all of these things. Uh, and um, we need to cultivate individuals who are members of our communities and that are equals. Uh, and if we don't do that, then I, I really, um, I'm gonna start to lose hope. Not that I ever would, but. Uh, it makes me, it, it, it gives me dark visions sometimes when you put it that way. Um, well, you know, you talk about in your book um, that the people who have gone through suffering and gone through hardship and that really these kind of, not only are the texts produced by people who, you know, Boethius was imprisoned or whatever, not only are these writings coming out of hard lives, but also being in hard places, reading these things actually builds up and thickens your character to the point that you can withstand troubles in your own life. And I, I always think of when you go to college and people are talking about all these experiences, they're really deserving themselves because student development coordinators know that students have the greatest sense of belonging when they go through trials together, when they suffer together. And yet every single experience that they build is away from suffering you know, forget that you're homesick, forget that this is hard, forget that college is difficult, that you don't know what's going on in your classes, that you have all these stressors, and instead have all these false pleasures that are really temporary happinesses versus the, the rich, deep pleasures that you talk about in your book that will actually 
make you more of a community, that you'll have more belonging, and that you'll be able to understand the suffering in your life better long-term. Even if you think about the smallest bits of suffering, so I'm just thinking about the suffering of, so I'm a bit of, I have a bit of an organizer personality. I like to plan stuff and do stuff, but nothing ever, as most organizers know, nothing ever really works. So, you know, there's the suffering of, you know, you start, you're like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a poetry reading on Friday nights, you know? So you try to organize it, you get all your friends together, you put up some notices and maybe someone shows up the first night and then kind of tapers off and then it doesn't work. Whereas if the administrator's running that, there's a, there's a paid staff, they're there all the time, they're making sure it's keeping going so that you don't have that awkward sense of like, oh, I guess this didn't work. Maybe I didn't care about this as much as I thought I did. Maybe others didn't. So it's, it's very scary to me that even those kinds of suffering, the tiniest little bits of suffering uh, are seen as things that should be avoided um, because, you know, we, we, uh, we, we say we want our young people to succeed, but we're not preparing them for anything except a success that someone else gives them. And that's just not the kind of success that really matters. I mean, the kind of success that matters is something that you make for yourself. You know, and, you know wise people have always known this. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know all what's behind it. I don't think it's all ideas. I think some of it's economic forces and you know why do we have these huge administrations and why is everything kind of top down that seems like a hard question it's not really ideas but um but maybe we can try to counter it by thinking a little bit yeah well so do you think that there's a place still still for liberal arts at the college level so one of the things that you mentioned is that it could be outside of institutions so primarily st john's where you're a tutor is a liberal arts education, right? right? You don't do a lot of the training for a specific job. They do that when they're in graduate school, right? Um, so you, that is where you've planted yourself. Uh, but a lot of places are realizing, okay, liberal arts isn't happening in college. So we have K through 12 now classical education and they kind of build you up to that point. Or you're starting the Catherine Project, which seems like it's liberal arts once you've already graduated, right? Now you can, so, so where would be the right place then for liberal arts now? Um, I don't know that there's a single answer to that question. And I don't want there to be actually. So, and I don't want to say it's done at the college level. Right. Um, part of what I'm trying to do is to think about, think practically, um, things have been going very badly for the liberal arts and higher education for a long time. And maybe, some things will start to reverse. And certainly in particular places, things might reverse. Um, you know, the, our higher education system in the US is very complicated, it's very big. There's so many different kinds of institutions. And, you know, who knows what might be possible at the college level. I still think, honestly, um, when I look at the kind of thing that happens at St. John's or a place like the University of Dallas, where uh, students have these transformative experiences through the liberal arts at a really, important stage of their lives, I, I think that there's no way not to see that as a loss if it's lost. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, I don't want to, but, but I also don't want to despair if it is lost, worst case scenario. So I, I think that um, I want to kind of, one of the reasons why I wrote the book in a way that was pretty vague in general without a lot of pragmatic suggestions is that I think that there are probably a lot of ways of cultivating liberal arts. 
So uh, the Catherine project is meant to be, um, it, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with Jonathan Rose's work. Uh, you know, he's a historian of reading uh, at Drew University. Um, and he really catalogs all of these informal reading societies, which covered um, both in various countries, actually, in various cultures in different periods. But in the US, it's especially late 19th, early 20th century, up to the mid-century, um, workmen's associations, you know, grassroots intellectual organizations. Um, and the Catherine Project is meant to try to pick up a bit of that tradition. That is, let's get the people who want to study seriously together. Um, it's kind of a good time. It's quarantine. People are bored. People are restless. They need ways of connecting. But so one thought is to try to build those kinds of organizations, grassroots organizations. And those could be run through libraries. They could be run as outreach programs in colleges. There's all kinds of ways of doing it. Um, and yes, I think also for young people, I, I think the classical school movement is positive in a lot of ways. Uh, so I think that's, it's helpful. It's a way of preserving the, at least the books and the sense that there's a past that's worth studying and, and things like that. So I, I don't want to determine how it looks. I just want to say um, it's not it's not limited. This activity is a human activity. It's not limited to any particular type of institution. And if our institutions fail, then we have to find other ways of doing it. That's really the point I want to make. It's not uh, any specific proposal. It's just let's remind ourselves of what this activity is. We can try to reform our institutions to, to cultivate it better, or we can build new institutions, or we can do something else, but we have to do it. Right, right. And for you, you're talking about the activity, including the maths and the sciences. What, so yeah, so what else do you, in the Catherine Project, what all are you teaching? What are you offering people? Are you offering them the maths and science, like that part of the quadrivium, or what is it you? Right, offer? well, so it's, it's really in infant stages, and it is an experiment. So it's, I, I can't talk in a comprehensive you're way. You're building the bridge while you cross it, which is fine. I just, what, yeah. what do you imagine is the bridge you're building? So um, I can't see that practically speaking, we would be able to do much in the realm of science because just because you want to be able to work with materials and you have to be in person, I think. Um, you could do, and then the most you could do would be something like the St. John's approach where you're, where you're redoing old things because the new things all require um, machinery that's very expensive, very complicated and not available to everyone. But you could at least, the old books and the old articles do uh, cultivate the scientific imagination, uh, which you know I think is really important. So, it, and it helps you to see it as a human endeavor. Um, and that that's an important part of thinking and understanding the past. So can I have a follow-up on that and then I'll go back to some of the things you're working on with Catherine Project. So why, I hear this all the time, so I'm going to throw the question out there, why would we study old science documents or even just old texts in general when we now know so much more than they did, right? Like why, why would we go back in time and, you know, read Galen or, or read Newman or read any of these people that are writing these, these old texts that we've gone past? Well, so one way I've put it, I think this is a little bit, it's only a piece of the picture. So what I'm about to say is partial. But part of it is, um, if you read the old papers or the old books of science, you are 
stepping into the way the human activity of science, that is the way that investigation into nature works. So um, you see all of the contingencies of it. You see that, for instance, here's an example that I've been thinking a lot about the past couple of years. So I've been reading through St. John's, these early modern physicists, Leibniz and Newton and Descartes, Galileo. And one of the ideas that I play with that I'm not sure how to think about it um, is that they think that they're doing pure mathematics and that nature is purely mathematical. That is, it's not an experimental science. It's not a like, let's go out, look at the world and figure out what to think about it. It's not like, let's do this a hundred times and collect statistics. Um, that they would look on with complete contempt. They want truth that's certain and demonstrable. And that's a very Im different image of science than what we have now. So, you know, if we, we, if we have a sort of triumphalist view of the history of science, it's like, oh yes, we're building on, we're building this massive edifice of understanding. We're obscuring um, a lot of interesting possibilities for how to think about the world and possibilities that frankly, we can't rule out. We know a lot. Um, a lot of what we know is really practical. We don't have a theoretical vision of nature through physics. We don't have that. It's notoriously, we don't have it. We have three or four different paradigms which are incompatible with one another. So what exactly do we know? Um, we know how to do some things. We know some details in different places. So I think that um, treat, so that, that's a big part of it. The other part is, you know, we all see this every day in the news, right? Scientists say, do this, you know, scientists say, wear your mask, you know, scientists say, don't wear your mask. Um, you, science is not um, something that you want to take as an unquestionable authority. You want to be able to think about it as best you can. And to do that, you need to be empowered to get yourself into the mind of a scientist, even if you're not gonna get that expertise, which not, life is short, we're not gonna learn all the expertises. But if you, if you learn enough about science at the fundamentals and the old books can do that, then, then you can get a sense of, well, okay, where's this person coming from? What's their principle? What's their assumption? Do I accept that assumption? And, and you can think for yourself and make judgments because we live in a democracy, right? So we're not, we're, we're not supposed to be ruled by scientists. We're supposed to appoint scientists who we think are good. How is that supposed to work? Uh, we have to be able to use our judgment uh, to decide who's worth trusting and who isn't. Yeah, and Chesterton would say the greatest democracy is the democracy of the dead. Right, no, that's but all. You do have to draw all these voices in if you're actually gonna be egalitarian, if you're actually gonna include everyone. Right. Uh, and why are you not including all these people just because they happen to have died? That's right, it's prejudice against dead people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I love Chesterton. Yeah. So, but right now you're teaching Greek, is that right? No, I'm teaching, uh, you mean the Catherine Project or St. John's or both? Oh. <laughs> yeah, different, different teachings, right? Um, so are you teaching Greek for the Catherine Project and you're teaching the Odyssey with St. John's? No, no, so I'm um, in the, the Catherine Project is offering a Greek tutorial. I'm not teaching it. Oh, okay. uh, 
so um, and then we also so there there are some students learning ancient Greek with a caption card. Okay. Then there's the main thing that we're doing is these tutorials. Um, there's five tutorials. Everyone's reading Homer, so there's two groups reading the Iliad and the Odyssey over the course of the semester. And then there's three other groups that are doing something a little bit more intensive. So the Iliad, the Odyssey, Oresteia, and some Plato. Oh, fantastic. Um, so I just read a third of the Odyssey with my tutorial students in the Catherine Project. But, I'm but in my, uh, my other life, I'm doing uh, 19th century French poetry and, <laughs> and uh, Galileo and uh, Hegel's no, Marx, you know, so I, you know, this is part of what I love and hate about my job is uh, it's intellectually exhausting, you know, I get pulled in 10 different directions and to the point where I can't think anymore. So well, at the same time, you know, I, I love the fact that the reading is my job. I mean, I, at the end of a year, I usually look and decide like what were the best books for that year. And uh, last year I was trying to look up like how many books do people read in a year. And so CEOs in America read 12 books a year, but the average American reads four. But because, because I'm a professor, I read 72 last year. I really think being a professor is the best job because you get to read all of these different texts, you know, during the course of the year. No, and I like having, um, it's something who I was just, I don't remember who I was talking to about this, but one of the things I think that's happened in our intellectual lives, and this is especially for academics, is that there's a kind of um, fear and maybe even contempt for amateurism. So, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't, if you don't really know something, you really shouldn't read it or talk about it, you know. And I, it's been so beneficial to me intellectually right. to have um, to be dabbling in stuff that I'll never be an expert on. I'm never going to be an expert on early modern science, but I think it's really helped me um, intellectually. Uh, so I, I think part of what we need to try to recover is the, you know, a little bit of tolerance for people who are talking out of their depth, you know, who make mistakes, who, because you have to recognize that, why are they doing this? They're doing it out of love. Like, that's what we... That's what we want. We want that more than we want the right answers, which we could get from Wikipedia or whatever. Well, did you read Adam Nicholson's Why Homer Matters? No, I didn't. So, well, there's a, um, there's a fun, it, it's a new book on Homer, so I was just picking it up because I'm No, I've seen it, but I haven't read it yet. Right now. Um, and anyways, he, he is called an amateur on the cover, which is fun because it's amateur in the sense of the word meaning like to love. Yes. Right? So he yes. really, he does this, he writes this book because he loves the Odyssey he loves the Iliad. He calls them, you know, the guidebook to life that really we are supposed to love these things and appreciate them. And that's who you want to read writing on this. So, right. you know, a lot of academics have um, cut apart so many of the good things into pieces and you can't right. imagine anyone who really loved it would have taken it into so many little pieces and right. you know, <laughs> destroyed it the way they sometimes do. So, um, yeah, so I'm a big proponent of amateurs too. Did you read David Epstein's range about how generalists triumph in a specialized world that's a subtitle it's so good so good well you're you're just you're poking at a bit of a wound which is that although i write in this world i don't have the time to read in it much so i haven't you know when i was writing my book i read related books but i haven't had the time since i wrote it to to, to read the other things the new books that are coming out the you know it's 
it's a, it's a literature that I can, I don't know how I can keep on top of. Yeah. It's embarrassing because I'm expected to be a part of this conversation. And I, and I just, I, all I really want to do is like poke my head up and be like, this is what I think. And then just you know, <laughs> not listen to anyone else, go back to whatever I was doing. And it's not quite responsible. Well, so, but you're reading the primary sources. So let's, let's end with that. I won't take up more of your time, no, uh, but, but wrap it up for me with just talking about the Odyssey in particular, because you said it's hard to talk about this broadly. Right. Why should a CEO read the Odyssey or a lawyer or a teenager? Why should they read the Odyssey? I think that the Odyssey, I'm going to, you're asking me to be specific and it, well, I, I, I have to start out in the general and then go in. The Odyssey, like all, uh, like all great books, mm -hmm. um, is, and in a way, especially because it's beautifully entertaining. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's the TV of the eighth century BC, right? So it's written to be read and enjoyed. Um, it's not written for scholars. So um, because it's old and the world is different, it's a little more work for us to understand it, to get into the world than it would be to get into the latest episode of Law and Order or whatever. Um, but it's much more worthwhile, partly because it's this other world, partly because the poet is an amazing thinker and is putting things together that we never put together. But I also think that it's great books approach really fundamental questions, um, questions which I think that we're all, we all really do have, even though it can be work for us to get in touch with them. And the Odyssey in a way has some of the most familiar kinds of questions. So, you know, it's about a man who's been away at war for 10 years and stuck trying to get home for another 10. He's been away from his home for 20 years and he wants to get back, but he doesn't know what he's getting back to. Um, and uh, we have other stories that are parallel that you clearly see running through his mind. There's the story of his, um, the general Agamemnon who comes home to be murdered um, by his wife's um, consort. Uh, uh, you have um, uh, other people who never make it home, so Achilles who dies on the battlefield. Uh, but he has to try to figure out, so on the one hand, he's he's been through this war experience, as many people now have been, I don't think it's foreign, where he's engaged in the destruction of people's homes. So he's just sacked Troy, which is where people had their families and their homes and their livelihoods. And now what he really wants is to be in his own home, having seen how fragile it is. Um, and will his wife still love him? Like, is she, has she run off with someone else? Is his son really his son? Um, and, so all of the questions about what makes a good life, like what's the role, how do we appreciate our communities um, when they're so contingent and so fragile? Um, and what does it take for us really to inhabit a home um, where that's understood in a broad sense? Not in a, we have a kind of sentimentalized view of home, I think, because we think of it as being like our parents' house or you know, the place where we move in with our spouse and have kids. 
but a home is really a whole community. Um, it's where they speak your language, where there's rituals, where there's customs. Um, and and what, what does it mean that we need to belong to these communities? So I think anyone honestly could pick up the Odyssey and recognize himself or herself. And if not one, then more than one of the characters. And, um, and so in the midst of this entertainment, um, they can really uh, get some insight into things that they really care about, uh, that really matter to them and that are fundamental, you know, that are not just here today, gone tomorrow, like, you know, this election, that's, that election, uh, you know, this trend, that trend, you know, stock market goes up, stock market goes down, but, but something which is really, no matter what's going on in the rest of the world, it matters to figure out. No, I love that. I think that's fantastic because, you know, you can talk about these books all day long until you read them. It's almost impossible to give an apology or give a defense. Like you have to actually go and read it if you're going to understand why you should read it. I, I honestly think a lot of our crisis mm-hmm. is just people not having read them. And so I, I, I feel like there was a, um, you know, my parents' generation, which I think were maybe the last generation that really had to, you know, would have ordinarily read in college these books, those who went to college, which wasn't everybody, fewer people than go now. Um, but uh, you might criticize them. You might decide, you know, there's more to life than books. You might decide there's more books than these books, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't not revere them. Like, just if you've if you've had the experience of reading them, especially reading them with some with uh, one or two serious people, you just you're not gonna be able to dismiss them. Thank you for the conversation. I appreciate it. I'm. Oh no, it's so fun to talk to you finally. <laughs>